Welcome to episode 235 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today, we caught up with uh, someone we've been wanting to catch up with for a real long time. I first approached him about doing this episode over a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that someone is Guillermo Rausch. Guillermo Rausch. He's a hard guy to tie down. He travels <laughs> a lot, but we finally got him. Uh, Guillermo's the founder of Zite.co, which is uh, an incredible service that we use all the time. Uh, and he's built personally a lot of, and for Spectrum. Yeah, yeah, personally and for Spectrum. And he's built a lot of stuff that we use. Uh, and he's incredibly uh, talented and smart. And we get to pick his brain about he's also very uh, nice. designing systems and becoming technical or mental models that he's found useful, all sorts of cool things. Uh, before we get into that, We've got a new show on the Spec Network that you should check out. Tools Day just joined Spec. The show's been out for a while, but they're just joining now. It's uh, Una Kravitz and Chris Donaraj. It's a cool show that's just about tools. Oh, and I guess the context there is, if you didn't know, uh, we're part of a podcast network called Spec FM that has lots of shows for designers and developers. Yeah, uh, we founded it. Yeah. And so this is this is a new one, all about tools. Uh, really helpful if you are into keeping up with what's latest, what kind of products are coming out that make it possible to work more effectively. Yep. So you should go check that out. That's at spec.fm. Has all of our podcasts and tools day. It's on them. Welcome, Tools Day. All their new episodes will be posted on spectrum.chat slash spec.fm. You can find all their episodes there and chat with other people who are listening to that and other shows on the network. Yeah, hopefully see you there. And with that, let's get into episode 235 with Guillermo Rausch. Guillermo, which is my Americanized name. Uh, My Argentinian name is Guillermo. But Guillermo oh, is shit. what I go for. So I've with. been saying it wrong all along. <laughs> Everyone has, I guess. Will you say, yeah. the, say it the proper way again? Uh, Guillermo. Guillermo. We're going to say Guillermo in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I did pretty good. Yeah, it's it excellent, actually, because you have to sort of change the entire way you pronounce, right? It's yeah. not even just the shh and everything. It's, it's different. Yeah. Because... Uh, AA is a AJ. Yeah, so double L is typically uh, sort of mute uh, for like Mexican Spanish, mm-hmm. Guillermo. And in Argentina and Uruguay. Peru too, I think. My sister spent a lot of time there and she yeah, had it as well. There, it's not a lot of Spanish speaking countries for sure. Um, we The double L sounds like shh. So. Guillermo. And and I think we tend to speak a little faster, I think. Uh, the feedback that I get from people that learned Spanish in the US is, oh, your Spanish is super tricky. But if you're uh, a Spanish speaker from Argentina, you can sort of communicate perfectly with every other uh, Spanish speaker, which is a nice thing. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Advantage. Because if it, if, if it broke down into like, you know... <laughs> isolated Spanish that would be problematic that would be a nightmare you already have those Portuguese neighbors <laughs> exactly like, we do understand somewhat Portuguese but we exaggerate our own ability to understand <laughs> and speak Portuguese which created the Portuñol the mix between Portuguese and, and Espanol but yeah Spanish is uh, from my country has has been a great tool in general like everywhere I go there's always a Spanish speaker so uh, I'm very proud of it. Nice. And so now we've got your name. <laughs> yeah. What are you working on? So I'm the CEO of Zite, which is a company that makes cloud computing accessible uh, to everyone in the world. Mm-hmm. Our dream is just like mobile computing is sort of got a lot of things right that uh, widened the spectrum of computer users. Like my own grandmother uses 
her iPad a lot more than she could possibly use. <laughs> You're about to say she uses now. <laughs> yeah, well, soon. That would be impressive. So, uh, she uses her uh, her iPad a lot more than she, you know, would use a computer with a, a keyboard and a mouse and and the and the monitor and the CPU tower that you have to like press a button on and. And uh, so I think that the same problem exists in the cloud. I think we developed a lot of amazing technology in this space over over the last few decades, but uh, there's just too much and it's too confusing to use, and 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 the user is not guided into the the pit of success of, oh, this is how I launch an app, which for a mobile uh, device is a double tap, and for a computer that I use, like the Mac. It was, you know, mounting the DMG volume and dragging and dropping and unmounting mm-hmm. the volume. And, like, it, it's just it seems so <laughs> obvious in retrospect, right? Like, how do we get app installation so wrong? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of my dream with this is that as we continue to learn the best patterns of cloud computing, we can uh, empower all these users that didn't even think that they could leverage cloud computing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's appropriate we give some context here because we use a bunch of Zeit services for Spectrum. Um, and products. We, and well, products, yeah. Like, like I use Next.js for my personal stuff a lot. Yes. Well, yes, yeah, so that's my question. Is like you do a ton of stuff within Zeit. Maybe you can talk a little bit about like what yeah. the things are that... Like the main service just makes your background of your website black. That's <laughs> my understanding. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now is our main product, uh, which allows you to deploy any technology uh, with just one command. So any programming language any sort of backend service, any sort of website or web service, uh, we also support uh, static deployments, for example. And it gives you a URL. So I've always had this uh, passion for uh, the hyperlink, right? Like my my whole thesis is everything that has not yet been hyperlinked will be hyperlinked. So if we step back and take that thesis a little further is, you know, you look at GitHub and they put a hyperlink on everything. They put a hyperlink on every uh, per character diff of your code base, every line of code, every change set, every everything. So you take, um, you know, cryptocurrencies and now we have like hyperlinks into transactions. We have hyperlinks into uh, X and money to Y, what fee do they pay? Like, let's go further into that. So for us, with now, every time you type it in and press enter, we're giving you a URL to that point in time deployment of your application. You can go back and run old copies. Uh, with this same concept, we can scale it so you can run thousands of copies of a very one deployment. So we can sort of so- solve this problem of like, how do we communicate around working code? So how do we hyperlink into execution of code? That's the main problem that we want to solve. We want to make it instant and we want to make it um, extremely scalable worldwide. So the idea also that comes with now is that you don't worry about location. So you might be deploying in San Francisco, but we can execute it in uh, Brussels, which is where our second data center is. And you really don't have to think about it. Like your customers are coming from Europe. Well, we execute your code in Europe. Your customers are coming from America. We execute them in America. So it's it's a lot of things. It's a latency, lower latency for the end user is uh, reliability that you can run your code everywhere. Uh, it's this amnesia about regions and availability zones and location. Uh, the the entry point into it is the uh, hyperlink. This sounds like a really pretty straightforward problem set, um, <laughs> and probably not technically advanced. So what's harder that you're working on? What are the what are, what are like the actual challenging parts? So the, 
the challenge really is um, once once you take this idea that you're going to run code everywhere, there, there's all this complexity that we're trying to hide from the end user. For example, uh, ensuring that over time we satisfy their traffic requirements, we satisfy their preferences when they determine how to scale these products. Um, for example, uh, concerns like boot up time and how quickly we can spawn deployments. And so there's a lot that goes into the magic of executing the code and making it work reliably at scale that we can sort of solve for you. And this goes into this idea that that is sort of one of our core philosophies, which is we want to empower the individual within the company. We want to empower the small team within the company, or we want to empower the small team as a startup so they don't have to worry about all this underlying technology uh, for you know scale and uh, performance or how the paradigm of internet protocol changes over time. So for example, every time you deploy, uh, we serve your traffic over HTTP2. And we encrypt it uh, automatically with uh, SSL and mm -hmm. Let's Encrypt. So, like, these are all sort of like implementation details that have evolved over time. But they're hard to do on your own anyway. Like, they're very exactly. tedious often. Like, so, SSL certification yeah, was a huge fucking thing. Uh, Google just uh, Google Chrome is in uh, right now as we speak in the in the process of uh, landing a patch that will render uh, Anything, every HTTP yeah. website is going to literally say not secure. Mm -hmm. And this that's is that's landing in June, I think, or something. I th yeah, I think they're uh, merging it now, and should probably Got be it. out in the in the next uh, few months. And I can envision, you know, truthfully, a lot of small teams, a lot of even big teams around the world that are scrambling now to add encryption into their stack. And this is the kind of thing that you know, it's not really what goes into creating a successful product. You shouldn't have to worry about. Encryption. You shouldn't have to worry about renewing certificates. You shouldn't have to worry about this entire set of problems that are part of the internet standards. So, like, just like the hyperlink has become the standard way that we uh, access content, transfer content around. There is uh, DNS. There is SSL. There is all these concerns that we want to solve uh, for people. I think this is super fascinating because what you said was we're trying to hide a lot of this complexity from the end user. And this is a problem that like most designers are thinking around with, especially with UI. Like, There's a million things you can do in any application, but what are the most important things and then where do we hide all the other stuff or do we even let people configure this kind of stuff? And it gets into like Apple versus Android in, in many ways, right? Um, how do you decide what complexity to hide? Because in comparison with your competitors, for them, at least the competitors I've used, the answer is hide no complexity. Right. Like, you can do anything you want. And as a result, I'm like, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> but with you, it's like type three letters. Right. Literally type three letters. Type the word now. Like, how did you get enter. to that point? Like, I can only imagine the conversations of trade-offs and, and like, <laughs> sticking to this guiding philosophy Correct. versus doing what people tell you they want you to do. One philosophy that we have is that uh, it, this goes a lot into the the concept of like what people call magic. Like, what's magic? What's not magic? When is it right to call or or use or make something magic? And when it's actually uh, deceiving in that you're hiding the complexity so that someone finds it later, right? So. Uh, something that guides our, our thinking a lot here is Git. 
So Git is a very interesting piece of software in that the learning curve is um, deceptive in the sense that you can get up and running with Git very quickly by learning a few basic commands like Git pull and Git push. Mm -hmm. Every one of these commands actually has all these uh, subcommands that you might find mm -hmm. later on of how the internals of Git actually work. And what the creators of Git have given you is like this little uh, commands that sort of summarize all these processes and they execute them in succession. And later on, the more advanced user still has access to those intermediate steps. So an example with now is when you have your deployment and I run now, I get a URL that is like uh, my dash website dash random string dot now that is H. And then the, the next question is, it was obviously when we launched it because it was only that, I was, okay, how do I now make my URL be a spec.fm? So we introduced this command called now alias. So now alias is kind of similar to git push in the sense that like you say, I want to alias my deployment um, to this final, let's call it URL. So what's interesting about this command is that it acts like Git in that it's executing a lot of intermediate steps. For example, it makes sure that a certificate exists for the target domain. So it says it invokes underneath the hood, it does now cert add. And it actually makes sure that your domain exists and, and it adds it otherwise. So it has now domain add. So a very interesting property that emerges is we're giving people sort of the shortcuts, but we're retaining all a very cohesive and accessible underlying topology that they can still access. So that's the insight that I think Git had that allowed it to take over subversion because uh, when I first started using Git compared to the other systems of version, I was actually able to even create aliases. Uh, like, I remember... Uh, I have you, a bunch of aliases. Yeah, yeah I had aliases yeah. for like Git for all the subversion commands. So I was like, okay, why is everyone so excited about this then? If, it's, if I ended up with the aliases that give me the same exact workflow? And the answer was, but actually because of the way that it's implemented internally... Uh, for example, features like um, the local branching and immutability and all these really interesting properties, then uh, Git ended up being the superior model. So that's how we approach this problem is we don't like the approach of hiding complexity so that then you get uh, frustrated later on. We want to give a lot of power with easy-to-use commands uh, and that's sort of been our guiding principle. And obviously, it's not a very easy problem uh, to solve because sometimes you get confused by, okay, I'm going to go with what's easy. But sometimes what's easy ended up being the wrong solution. So I think this is a very interesting, uh, generally applicable concept in design that uh, just because you hit something from view, you tricked yourself into thinking that you've removed the underlying complexity. Um, I have examples of this where like, you know, you deploy a new UI that takes away uh, features that frustrate users, but then you just said, oh no, it's just, you know, it's easier this way. Or I remember when um, Gmail redid their Compose um, UI, it looked a lot simpler, but then there were three levels of nested uh, overlaid toolbars. Mm -hmm. So the reality was like, they couldn't take away the power. Like yeah. Gmail users needed that power. And they try to like make this UI trick you into thinking, oh, it's so simple. And then whenever you needed to use one of those more powerful tools, you couldn't. 
So that's, I think, the balance that we're always navigating. The trade-off space that we're always navigating with our products is we need to retain that underlying power without tricking the user into thinking, oh, you know, it's just, it's, it's so easy, like, forget about yeah. that complexity. So do you start with the end vision, like, we want users to type now and it does all this stuff? Or do you start with the primitives like, well, for a domain to exist, it has to like be a valid domain and then we got to do that. So like, do you start with those underlying things and build up to the vision or does the vision trickle down into the necessary requirements? Yeah, that's a really good question. For the, uh, I, I do have a thesis that whatever process uh, becomes the process that dominates your workflow. So for example, uh, a, a very a little example of this is every time you would um, install your uh, Node.js dependencies, we all used to type like npm install. And then Yarn came along and Yarn said, well, it's just Yarn. And because that's the main utility of the application, that's what dominates your workflow, it's Yarn. Mm -hmm. and, and yet the two tools are compatible. Uh, but I think Yarn actually got it right because that's when I interface with this, like we can't hide or ignore the reality that 99% of the times I just want to get all the latest dependencies. And that's how we looked at now. It's like we knew that we could figure out all the underlying details and retain that sort of power. But we also knew that like the thing that people want to do is like they want to quickly share what they're working on. And that should be now. And it shouldn't be anything else. And and later on, sure, like you can extend your configuration, you can go into like more advanced commands and so on. But that's the fundamental tool. It would be almost like if Git, um, the fundamental premise is like I want to synchronize my local with my remote. And if Git did that when you press enter, like it'd be a little easier. <laughs> so that, that was kind of like the, the the first idea was okay. That is the thing that people are always yeah. doing. Uh, let's let's take a step back and focus on that first. And and there were some trade-offs along the way, right? Like now today implies a web accessible service. So like the prime the the I, I always think of this in, in mathematical terms and like as a function of your code, we give you a URL. So like now receives the code as the input, it spits out URL as the output. And yeah, so that um I wouldn't say that that constrains power because over my life, I've realized that everything that doesn't have some sort of uh, HTTP interface uh, is just because it doesn't have it yet. So, like even databases and a lot of different processes should still, I think, expose some sort of like little API to ascertain its health or or get some use, useful uh, statistical information out of it. But that is one constraint today. Is like whatever you now has to be exposed as a uh, URL accessible, HTTP accessible service. But that has also gotten us so far because people don't have to then think about trying to like fit this model into like hosting their own database, for example. And we help people by not trying to solve problems that they don't know yet that are very, 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 very tricky. Like for example, if now allowed you to type now to host a database, there's all these series of problems that we uh, could be ignoring. Like, for example, how do we distribute our database across the entire globe? How do we ensure that, uh, you know, you're performing backups of that database? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. there's all a series of things that we know from experience that we just want to say no at the time so that we don't give you a solution that is not truly scalable or that it doesn't satisfy 
our requirement of being world accessible. Like one of the uh, parts of our mission is, is not only that we want to make the cloud really awesome for like people in San Francisco. We want to make the cloud really awesome for distributed teams with people working, you know, in, in places that are typically very far away from the preferred cloud locations of the world. Preferred cloud locations. <laughs> yeah, like everyone, uh, you know, the, the most common uh, AWS location is uh, uh, East Coast. And, you know, the latency to the East Coast from uh, certain places in the world is actually pretty significant. So the idea of now is, can we also guide uh, the creators and the people that are using the tool into creating this uh, websites or services that reach the entire globe that have always low latency, that um, self-heal, that have all these interesting properties um, of scale. This mission of the distributed, like serving distributed teams, it reflects quite a lot in the the UI as well. So like you guys have obviously a dashboard for all your stuff, but the interesting thing to me was the dashboard isn't like this configuration panel. It's a timeline of Correct. things that your teammates did. Like, mm -hmm. What <laughs> is like, everyone doing to <laughs> yeah, this what, cloud? What did people yeah. do Correct. and when? <laughs> In fact, a lot of this uh, thinking emerges from that idea of I'm working with people over the internet, right? Like, okay, why do we want to make it easy to share a link to what you're working on? Well, we want to make it easy because we're assuming you're in some sort of chat room. Uh, maybe not everyone is even online at that given time. Uh, a solution that people used to do for this is like, I'm going to create a reverse tunnel into my laptop and, or I'm going to open a port on my firewall and like let people access it this way. But that doesn't truly work if like, you know, people are accessing your stuff from like tens of thousands of miles away or they're not even awake at that time. So we're sort of dog footing it in, a, in an interesting way because like our team is distributed we, are, we have this idea in mind of developers that are everywhere in the world uh, collaborating on projects. They need to convey the results of their code quickly to others. It's not even just code, too. I was surprised to find that static files work, too. Yeah. So you can just yeah. like load up photos or mockups or whatever. Yeah, because we realized uh, this is that's an interesting point uh, and goes back to the uh, original philosophy. So when I was describing this vision of a global globally accessible um, code base like or service that executes everywhere, the first thing that comes to mind is a content distribution network, a CDN. Mm -hmm. So I upload my file, I put, in, I, I put it into a CDN, and it's available everywhere. So the problem with that is you were confined to the realm of static. So like, oh, sure, I could put a video, I could put an image, but I can't you know, do accounting or I can't do real-time chat. So we're taking that further and we're saying, okay, you can execute any code anywhere in the world. And what we realize is, okay, static, from this perspective, static is a sub-world in the universe of dynamic. If, if you're able to run dynamic code <laughs> in Europe and California, you certainly can run static code. Uh, which is no code or of sorts. So uh, that's a very interesting property of the system is, and it's kind of, if you think about it, it's an evolution of my previous work in a way that I actually didn't realize in the beginning. It, was, it even surprised me. So my previous startup was called CloudUp. And it allowed cloud you to- CloudUp, not yeah. CloudUp. Uh, yeah, UP. So CloudUp uh, had this interesting uh, feature that you could drag and drop anything to the menu bar. Mm -hmm. And it would also give you a link. Cloud app also did that. I didn't realize that they were the same thing. <laughs> yeah, correct. Uh, 
so our our inspiration was an evolution in that concept yeah. that allowed you to add and stream any sort of file. So like you could uh, add more over time to one link. You could uh, render any type of content. Like we would transcode videos, for example. Mm. If you're familiar with the service Cloudinary, they do something similar, but um, as a replacement of S3 and CloudFront, where like you give them your files and they transform them. So just kind of similar, but more for the uh, end user. And this idea of the hyperlink was present uh, uh, then as well. Like every um, stream of content would have its own URL. Every item within each stream would also have its own URL. And it could be any type. So it could be like a Word document and we'd convert it into HTML5. And the service is still alive. It was uh, bought out by WordPress.com. But I guess I continue to want to scratch that itch. And I realized, okay, if we could do that for... Uh, static files, what's the same properties that we want out of the system, like ease of use, accessibility, low latency, versatility in, in what the content can be and what the representation can be, we realized that we needed the ability to run arbitrary code. So an example of that is, sure, uh, today you can actually uh, upload any sort of static file with now, but in the future, you might want to like render it in a particular way. Something that we used to joke about with uh, CloudUp is like it'd be really cool if we took .rom files, like um, you know, like, like video game files, yeah, like video yeah. game ROMs, and we could render a little emulator in browser. Well, you built a little Game Boy emulator, yeah, thing, right? I, I I've been nerding out on that for a while. <laughs> so like, I'm uh, a fan of. <laughs> Of that yeah. level of nerd, I, love I love emulation and virtual machines. This is probably also like one of the things that drives me to this problem is I love virtual machines. So, uh, but you know that would have required that CloudUp has code like for uh, the ROM and like maybe it would have accepted a subset of ROMs and maybe they would have only worked with like Game Boy, the first version of Game Boy. Whereas with now, we're saying, okay, it's we're putting back the control. So today, you could write a little wrapper that takes your ROM and wraps it around with like a very thin HTML file that embeds a emulator in JavaScript. Uh, you could even like uh, read the ROM on the client side and, and determine what type of ROM it is and pick the right emulator. And then you get a link to it. So it gives you all this much more power because it's really putting, giving the control back to the user of what the representation looks like. So in practice, we have people that you know, render static files. We have people that uh, return JSON and uh, create APIs. We have people that use WebSockets and, or uh, GraphQL APIs. And Now you're just talking about us. <laughs> <laughs> hey. So that's, uh, that's the neat thing about this, is like figuring out how to give the control back to the user Within this model, with again, like we're we're talking about hyperlinks, we're talking about like web services, we're talking about websites, and you know it's it's a, a universe that is broad enough that we continue to work to this day on on polishing that experience on and improving that experience, and it's not so much that we need more features. Like uh, one of the uh, latest features that we did was um, we revamped our API. So you can now orchestrate deployments even more easily without even using our own tool, without using our own command line tool, or without using our desktop tool. Like you can create your own completely arbitrary experience on top of this. So an example is we have bots on GitHub that uh, make deployments out of every commit. So on GitHub.com/slash 
inside slash docs. If you send a pull request, you get a, a, a bot that writes out a URL for each commit that you make inside that pull request. Another example is someone recently did a little wrapper for sharing uh, data sets. Uh, so uh, every time you're working on like some Excel file and, and you wanna, let's say you have an Excel file at any point in time and you wanna quickly share that, but also give a, a, like a small query interface into that data set uh, that you can share with people. So that's the data set. So they use our API as an implementation detail and you can sort of publish any uh, data point and you get a URL to this, that, that file in that point in time, immutable, but then if it changes later on, you redeploy and you get another one. So you can sort of see how like this entire universe of services can be created. Like you can create the best way of sharing a ROM. You can create the best way yeah, of sharing a Yeah, I don't know why you didn't just stop at the ROMs thing. Like, <laughs> dude, it seems like you've solved it. <laughs> it sounds pretty awesome, yeah. Maybe I'll go home now and work on it, actually. I just want to play Fire Emblem. <laughs> yeah, and it has that idea of persistence over time, right? Like you can go back to any of those links and like revive that experience as it was at that very time. That idea of immutability is directly rooted in in Git and, and and similar services because it's so powerful. Like you go back into a Slack conversation from a year ago, you click an out link and it can work. Uh, provided they didn't uh, force delete it, it can work and uh, it'll revive that entire environment at the, as it was at that very point in time. So arguably, it's a nicer way to reason about. Uh, everything because maybe you were able to, um, you know, emulate uh, Pokemon Yellow.rom in a particular way at that point in time, but then later it got better. And now you have both Fire versions red. Got it. <laughs> coexisting online and they all have a hyperlink into it. it it's, a, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, and, it, uh, and that's why we're investing into our API because I think creators can find so many interesting applications for this concept um, because we give them the versatility to run whatever they want. You uh, want to know what one of my favorite features you shipped was? Faster deployments. Yes, <laughs> correct. So that is like kind of our obsession, right? Yeah. Like we continue to uh, work on faster and faster um, virtualization technologies, packaging technologies, intercluster data propagation technologies, um, constant measurement that goes into the, uh, it's in a way, it's obviously um, a very interesting problem to solve because we don't have to change the external interface to make our service better. And it's sort of something you could uh, think of like, Google gets better over time by just people typing into it. Uh, we want to do this to give you this experience that just gets better over time by you just continuing to use it. You have a pretty long background of writing about design concepts as well. And I'm curious how those carry over into what you're doing now, because we're talking about a lot of technical stuff, but at the end of the day, the experience provided users either on the website or the, the menu bar app or just the command line is all like super simple and For clean sure. and, and, uh, it's straightforward. Has, it has great Which I design to it. So I'm For curious sure. like how you merge those two worlds. Like you think of all this technical intra-cluster yeah. machine, blah, blah, blah. But then it's wrapped in a in a very accessible way. So like where does that come into the picture? Yeah, I think ultimately we're just discussing design problems, right? Like it all starts with a design. 
we even use the design word when you were talking about any sort of programming architecture, right. any sort of sophisticated system. Um, perhaps the most, uh, like uh, the common wisdom in, in startups and, and, and services is like, okay, you have to have some secret sauce, right? Possibly the most secret uh, sauce, the most uh, carefully curated monopoly of a technology is Google search, right? So no one has been able to imitate it or even get close to the quality of the combination of their huge data sets and the code that they run, Bing, uh, uh, DuckDuckGo, a lot have tried, but no one really gets close to that level of quality. And obviously what gets uh, mentioned a lot is the sophistication of their technology and algorithms. But it all started with a very uh, interesting set of design decisions, right? Like yahoo.com at the time was this hugely complicated front page with guides, uh, online guides, and like um, nested maps of links and login and all this complicated stuff. And Google was just the input. So I think that uh, that is the key thing that a designer does, right? Like maybe the designer doesn't know okay, uh, we're going to have to use this crazy machine learning algorithms or uh, we're going to write this super awesome map-reduced framework for crawling over gigantic data sets and swarms of commodity hardware. But the designer could have also said, I know, let's figure it out, but let's retain the input because I don't want people to have to click around. I want them to just like connect their thoughts directly into the input and then work backwards to the technology. So to me, design is where everything starts and ends, right? Uh, even to this day, you know, the uh, iteration that you, you can continue to go 20 years later and still the same design, the logo and the input. And for us, it's the same thing. I expect our main design to remain the same as we continue to improve every other area. So that's why I care so much about UI, and I care so much about how designers reason about their UI. The their UI as a also as a discrete state in a point in time, kind of like now, and how time gets embedded into that equation, and how your design evolves over time. What happens as a consequence of user input? What happens as a consequence of uh, the network? Like how can designers better specify their work. This is like sort of one of the things that I've been most passionate about recently. Maybe I can speak for both of us, but you wrote the the blog post called Pure UI. Like, yeah. I don't know, kind of changed my whole mental model around designing. And you can look around today at all the work we're doing. And uh, I guess maybe it'd be helpful if you gave your your like TLDR of that that blog post because yeah. I think it's important for designers to read because it thinks about time in a different way. And also the ability, almost what you're saying, like being able to link to any point in time, but as it applies to a user interface and the state of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So pure UI, starting, I, I just, yeah, yeah, I love that starting with the title, um, the hallmark of a post that I'm satisfied with is that the title has to be a pun. Okay. So if you ever, uh, or there has to be some sort of like double meaning to mm. it. So if you ever read a post that I've written that doesn't have that, not I'm satisfied. Probably, I don't think it's that great. <laughs> so, so you hate this post, is what <laughs> no, you're saying. It, it, this one has a very subtle, yeah. a double meaning, which is pure UI in terms of pure functional programming, mm -hmm. pure UI in that you 
uh, the designer thinks about the just purely the UI, the essence of the UI. Like, let's only worry about the UI, not the code. Let's just specify the UI over time. So pure UI is sort of this combination of ideas that come from functional programming, which is the idea that for a certain input of data, you yield a certain output of another data structure that in this case represents the UI. So you start thinking about your designs on, for example, in tools like Sketch or Photoshop as, okay, this is a discrete representation of my design when the data is this. So for example, you're designing a video player, and this is the example that I give in the, in the blog post, and the video player that you have in your artboard is a video player that satisfies the data for the title is such, the thumbnail is this, the uh, options available to the user for this particular video are so-and-so, HD is enabled. And then your job as a designer is to sort of specify how you, the, all the variety in your design when that data changes. So for example, another uh, circumstance that can change is that you're operating when the width of the, your viewport is 200 instead of being 800. So what does that mean for responsive designs? Oh, so the job of a designer uh, until now has sort of been imagining what those data requirements are and putting them into artboards. And what they use to decide what those artboards are and what those estates of their design are is their own experience. So they go back and they remember, okay, if I only give this to the developer, they're going to come next week and they're going to tell me, hey, what happens to the video player uh, when the viewport is smaller and like there's this media query and so on. So I argue that an experienced designer is just one designer that has been through that workflow so many times <laughs> that they can sort of predict what all these different desired states of your design are and what the data that describes each, um, each state and each design are. Very experienced designers also think adversarially. So... Uh, this is a concept that I didn't actually... Yeah, they're all dicks. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bet that concept there, but I've been using that word a lot, adversarial. So uh, you can treat a design very like a, like a polished gem. Like, oh, it's just the, the happy path. It's, the title fits perfectly <laughs> into my allocated space. The contrast between the background and the text is always great. The avatars are all beautiful white people <laughs> yes. with four-letter names. Correct. So um, an adversarial thinker thinks, okay, uh, the text is actually Unicode. Uh, actually, no, the user came in and inputted only emojis. Uh, the, viewport, <laughs> the viewport is the iPhone SE, which is my uh, favorite iPhone. And actually, your thing doesn't fit. Uh, and the uh, wallpaper is uh, something that the user uploaded and it's completely white. So your white text doesn't render. So again, going back to the experience designer is one that like sort of knew all these universal data requirements, uh, all these inputs into the design. And they give you this amazing specification. However, that is not even, uh, I argue in the blog post, it's not even sufficient because what happens is the designer cannot possibly guess what more data points are going to come out or restrictions are going to come out of the implementation process. 
So an example that I give, and I think I have this very unique perspective because I designed the video player and I implemented the video player and I was like, oh my God, this HTML5 API doesn't let me do this. So that's the next step of this equation. It's like, once you're implementing the design, you realize, you know, designer, that actually is impossible. And so the, the developer or even the designer themselves realize, okay, we need this other data input that we have to retro uh, feed back into my original thinking, which is the state of, in, in the case that I, the example that I gave, if I recall correctly, was when you uh, are skipping through a video, you're not going to get the frame that you're skipping to immediately. So you have to reason about a waiting state. So if I, if I go to the middle of a video and I jump and that hasn't been buffered yet, then I'm going to have to tell the user like, in some way or another, like, hey, we're talking to the network, we're waiting. So then the developer sort of tells the designer back, hey, remember your beautiful video screen? Well, do something to it because <laughs> like, it's just going to like, we need to like, tell the user something happened here. So my argument was there, uh, yeah, the, the, the designer could have been super experienced and like sort of like been this genius that knows about every state that the design is meaningful in. But then during implementation, I, I call this phase discovery. So the initial phase is design and the second phase is discovery. And discovery is when you sort of uh, invalidate a lot of your original hypotheses or you, dis you discover new states that you didn't know about Another example is like buffering, right? Like a video has to buffer and like there's these two levels of progress bars that you have in every video. And it might not be immediately obvious or known to the person that was sort of Im imagining this video screen that such thing was even a thing. That like the HTML5 video element already does buffering and it gives you all these events and all this information about uh, that progress. So... Um, taking that a step even further, so there's the sign, there's discovery. So you can almost imagine like almost like a protocol between the um, designer and the implementer of implementers just sort of communicating back to the designer, okay, this is the new data. Like you can even describe it as like a, a little JSON or you can say, you can describe it in pseudocode. Like you can say, uh, can you give me the state for like, okay, video width 500 and, and height 300, but waiting, true, because like we need to tell the user that they're waiting. So the more you get into the nuance of this process, you realize that the code is not even actually that meaningful. And I think this is sort of what we're realizing with technologies like React and, and technologies that apply this sort of uh, functional paradigm. And that's why the... the Pose is called pure UI because ultimately the implementation is sort of it's becoming more and more not easy because obviously there's all this nuance of of APIs and like limitations of the world and the universe, but it is becoming more understandable to uh, the both roles. Involved. It's easier to reason about. It's them. easier to reason yeah. about, especially correct. when it's like clearly just a functional. It's just a function of the state, correct, and, and maybe the content, right? Like. Yeah, exactly. Like content in this case, React calls in, the props, and then yeah. React also says that there is transient state. So that that's sort of what originates this uh, protocol that happens between designer and developer, where like uh, developer can tell the designer very clearly what they need. 
Uh, and I think uh, what the blog post sort of leaves open that uh, we can discuss today is, is a few things. So one is, what are the tools to make this protocol even more of a you know technology? So because today the way that this protocol is playing out in like most places in the world is Slack. And uh, someone is saying protocol, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> like the the developer is saying, "Hey, uh, I don't know. Like, can she just make it work better under this circumstance? Like, they're not even like technically like delineating that. Like, you're not saying like, hey, this is a state. It's encoded into this type or this type system or this. Um, there, here's the file of the state. Even um, so, that doesn't exist. Um, animation is sort of uh, a tricky one." Because one thing to keep in mind here is that many of these discrete states that the designer should sort of puts into the canvas are bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, very well. They don't I count. Was, I was gonna say they're <laughs> something nicer. Discrete yeah. versions of a dynamic system, <laughs> but yeah, they're kind of bullshit because like they they're a simplification of. Um, a, sometimes what's called a state explosion. Like, mm -hmm. you can't possibly render every single state. Um, Watch me. <laughs> the, the, the thing that keep, uh, comes to mind there is uh, The Library of Babel by Borges, uh, a writer from Argentina, where he theorizes about this library that has, every book has a combination of every glyph in every language, in every possible incantation, that, that there is a book in the library that is the index of every other book, so this the the job is deceptively simplified in pure UI because obviously uh, attempting to render every possible state is it's not possible, but you can get you can approximate and you can get close to defining all the constraints, right? Uh, obviously, you don't want to write down every possible glyph in. in you want to be as complete as yeah. possible in as few artboards as possible, or exactly. something. Exactly, and you want and that idea of completeness that is very very relevant, right? Um, because completeness is sort or even, of even more, even communicative, maybe right. more than complete. Or or completeness in the sense that you're sort of describing what the limits are, so you can say, you know, this can contain text from length zero to 200 beyond that we do um, ellipsis and in, no matter what you throw at it it's going to do well it's complete um and but yeah in 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 general it's, it's hard to do that but going back to the idea of a dynamic system position uh of different things within a design uh, can also be hard to reason about when you're describing discrete States. So, like, if you have an animation, it's hard to say, okay, this is the initial state, this is the mid state, and this is the final state of the animation. You fill in the gaps. Like that sort of communication is very tricky when motion is involved, because it's almost like actually that kind of makes it clear that the designer is approximating develop being being the developer so much that if a designer wanted to very accurately describe the motion that they had in their head and put it into a design, they would have to in, uh, embed the equations that take in the parameters involved, like time and, and space, and sort of like they, they have to implement it. Like that's the only way that they can accurately communicate what they wanted. They have to implement it. There are a lot of tools that have tweening now at least. Correct. That's so uh, interpolation 
is one of the tools that can allow you to dis describe a system in terms of, for example, the uh, beginning state, another intermediate state, and then maybe the final state. So interpolation allows you to say, okay, system, you fill in the gaps, so I don't have to create one billion artboards. So imagine like you want a ball to like yeah. have uh, decay with gravity, yeah. right? So like you could say, uh, this is the initial uh, position, this is the final position, this is the interpolation function. So that helps because then um, the job of the designer was simpler. Like they they only described a few states that they cared about and they, they let a system follow in, uh, uh, fill in the gaps. But yeah, because all these tools are emerging that are sort of, uh, I think sort of the need for designers to specify motion is what, it's going to end up putting the pressure on the tools to figure out everything else because like when you're when you're when you describe the animation you you filled in the gaps of, of actual functionality and i think following that train of thought is what's going to allow the designer just to do the entire job eventually obviously it's very aspirational but a, a great example that i always mention is when a designer is sort of um, specifying a system there is an invariant uh, for almost any interesting system in the world, which is at some point the network is going to be involved, <laughs> yeah. right? Because otherwise, maybe for video games, you don't have that problem, but you have more problems in the realm of motion and, and so on. So they have fun with that. But for any sort of application, you have the network at some point. And we already know very interesting properties about networks, right? Like networks are unreliable. Networks uh, very frequently fail, and therefore you have to communicate that failure back to the user. So going back to the idea of a completeness of a design, I can already tell you that if you're designing an application that uses the network, but your artboards don't contain some sort of like notification of sorts, uh, oh, the, your thing that you were trying to do failed, or you're not online, and now you're online. Like, if your artboards did not describe that, then you're describing incomplete design. So we know right, we know that right off the bat. So I think as we continue to collect all this, um, all these axioms of these systems, then we're gonna go deeper and deeper and deeper into the realm of implementation. We're like, okay, if the designer specified all the states for like what happens when like the network uh, fails and uh, or the server response with this, or the server response with that, then they actually did the whole job. Yeah. <laughs> Another axiom there would be accessibility. Correct. And that's just like multiplying this this grid. Accessibility is a great example. I think tools are not giving you any feedback whatsoever in that. Um, so yeah, the the uh, I guess one way of summarizing all the interesting problems that exist for designers is. All the tools that we use have this starting point of a canvas. And canvas is great for freeform creativity. So I would not want to give Picasso a design tool that, uh, hey, Picasso, stop drawing that stroke because that's an invalid state. No. <laughs> like, but if it's a designer that is work, operating, operating under all these constraints of uh, the systems that we're working with, we do need to guide them into completing and specifying those estates that they're not in many cases. So um, the blank canvas that, uh, for example, Sketch gives you is a very bad starting point, I would say, or it's 
uh, not helping you enough along that process because it's not um, uh, auto-completing for you. It's not like... There should be linting. There should be like <laughs> correct API <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, correct. everything should be able to check whether or not what you're doing actually can yes. exist. Yes, uh, because we are operating under constraints. So I guess that's the key, right? Like we're using a tool for unconstrained creativity that gives us a white canvas. And then we're using that tool to create a very constrained system with very particular axioms. And that cannot be the, that cannot be the end and tool like that yeah. we need to move in some direction beyond that you know yeah. um in my life i've had a few things that i've learned that like changed my whole perspective on building things or unlocked new capabilities one of them was meeting Bryn. <laughs> um so an example would be git and subversion another example would be um learning react uh has changed the capabilities that I have as a designer. It changes how you think about things. Because it changes the way you think about things. And I I would bundle your blog post in there as well because it changes the way you think about implementation. Yeah, and and I think designers have always been, they've just been implementing in their mind. Right. Um, There is this really awesome uh, medium post by the creator of Tezos, which is a cryptocurrency that tries to add formal verification to smart contracts so that they're... um, they don't. They can't have obvious bugs like losing everyone's money, and things like that. It's a good bug not to have. And he always talk. Uh, he uh, talks about proofs, and what he says about proofs is very interesting. In that, like every developer is always proving something, but the problem is that like they they keep the proof in their head, and in many cases they're not downloading that proof into the code, and that's what, that's what makes for brittle code is. The developer sort of knew how it was going to work, but they weren't able to transfer that knowledge and those constraints completely into the code. And that's what uh, creates incorrect code. And I think uh, with design, it's just the exact same thing. Is The designer had an idea of how the system was going to work in their head. They had everything figured out. Obviously not everything, but a lot of it. And yet there is no tool that is sort of telling you, hey, sure, I, I, I believe you. Like there's some compilers telling you, hey, I believe you that you figured everything out in your head, designer, but prove it to me that you mm-hmm. figured out everything out. Like if, if you made a decision to, I don't know, like render uh, a submit button, then prove to me that you thought about the error state of that submission because it's very likely there will be one because anytime there is user input, there is potential for like failure or, or incompleteness in, in that input and so on. So I think, again, like these worlds are sort of merging. And yeah. React and other tools are going to be very awesome um, technologies that designers are going to incorporate and will get them closer to this level of more strict specification. And at the end of the day, I think one uh, one interesting thing that's going to emerge, and this is more in the opinion, I don't have proof for this, but I think what's going to happen is that we're actually going to have an easier time designing just because I think there's sort of like a preconception that correctness is difficult. And yeah, like very high levels of correctness are always very, very difficult. But there's always really awesome tooling that can uh, allow you to make 
designs and make code work better without you having to think too hard. So an example with React is, it's very hard to reimplement React from scratch. I, I did it one time, and it taught <laughs> me fun. a lot. But For a ROM. I wouldn't do it again. Like I just would not do it again. And React has all this code for like making sure that like you do certain things right, and that's I think also what uh, will be generally applicable to design is like there's going to be a lot of sophisticated tooling that for design systems that make it easy and make it correct. So like mm-hmm. just because this sounds very complicated and the network and states and complexity and taming complexity doesn't mean that we're not going to have super easy to use tools in, in at the end of this. So that's something that's very uh, motivating for me because that um, is a very rare thing. And it's sort of something I chase in my life is like those tools that are simultaneously easy to use and correct. It's just like, it's such a, it kind of goes back to an earlier conversation of like, don't try to like hide complexity for the sake of it or like uh, easy com- can be deceiving. Um, I think there are very, very interesting technologies that uh, make your life easier and make the results more correct and make the results more performant. React is so successful because it is there. Sure, there is a learning curve that is not super meaningful, but um, uh, I'd like uh, to draw people's attention to this tweet by the creator of React. Um, he recently said something along the lines, paraphrasing, of every time you design a system that has as an output anything, whether it's pixels, whether it's files, whether it's uh, a data uh, set or whatever, think of it as computing the entire thing from scratch every time. And then use a structural sharing or caching or whatever to make it fast. So that's the uh, main insight behind React. So he sort of summarizing a tweet, the main insight of React is when you think about, uh, when you develop a React program, you always think about like repainting the entire UI from scratch, top down. If that happened in practice every single time, everything would be incredibly slow. But that's a much easier, like literally easier mental model for a developer oh, every time anything changes, I describe the entire tree of UI components for the entire application. Whereas when we used to use jQuery, we used to like worry about like local parts of the application. Like if, and if I receive a jQuery event, I, for example, like, um, I get a callback that um, I got some data from the server. I look at the data and say, okay, what pieces of the UI, what discrete pieces of the UI does this new information change? So I get a callback from, uh, I get I make a request that gets me the weather. And I look, I go through the data and says, oh, weather, sunny, true. And I write code that says, if cloudy, true, replace with sun. And that makes you reason about your program in a very local way. So like, you're always thinking about like, I got a new piece of information. What specific parts of my entire system that's this new information change? React says, don't worry about that. Always tell me what the entire world looks like whenever you get the weather. So if it's sunny, I render this and I render that. If it's cloudy, I render this and I render that. If one particular piece of information changed, don't worry about what the local impact of that new information is. Just tell me the entire story from scratch again. So if you take that insight, you'll find that it's widely applicable to a lot of programming tasks where computing the entire state of the system 
from scratch and rendering it out is the best way to reason about it. And then there are all these tricks that you can use to make it performant. So structural sharing is one of those. So when people got excited about the virtual DOM, people that understood React very deeply, including their creators, were like, don't get excited about the virtual DOM because the virtual DOM, you're just focusing on the implementation detail that gave us the performance. You're focusing on the hack that made it work well for the DOM. The innovation is not like that particular hack. It's the whole idea of I re-rendered the entire world from scratch for any new information, including no new information. Like the the way you describe your UI when you boot up your application is the same way uh, that when a new uh, HTTP response comes, it's the same as maybe if local data changes, you never worry about the specific little details. And that sort of thinking is um, is what gave us easy and correct, is what gave us easy and scalable. It's a very rare that this happens. And this, this is why, you know, it's all you hear about. Like you go on any uh, front-end developer and they're all talking about virtual DOM or React or this or that. It's because, you know, it doesn't happen every year that we come up with such a technology. Um, we come up sometimes with like the easy ones. Oh, I created this little utility, this little hack that just like does this. Uh, but it's not profound because it it was just not that, um, it was just a quick hack, you know? As I'm listing out these things that change my mental model, um, I would add on like type checking as well, just because like if you think about type checking in the context of inputs, in, into your like pure UI and you just consider network status as like Correct. a type that can be nullable. And types, <laughs> type types, changes everything, right? Types also fall under that idea that I was mentioning earlier of like, because the types are not written out on the code, it just means that they're in somewhere's head, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So systems that are truly scalable and that a lot of people can work on are the ones that don't rely on knowing the content of your coworkers. <laughs> so <laughs> generally good advice. So you're saying the solution is cybernetics <laughs> is what I'm hearing. It's either, it's either that, is there like, we all share one global consciousness and brain hive mind <laughs> <laughs> or we write down what we had in mind. So when you describe a, a variable and uh, a hack around types was people used to include the type of the variable in the name of the variable. <laughs> or sometimes you can infer the type of the variable based on the name of the variable. So like we all know that age is a number. So it'd be quite surprising to for age to be... Function. Yeah. Um, unless you're in the Haskell world, but um, it, like we would expect that age is going to be a number, right? And that is interesting because like that goes into the realm of inference because uh, it would be bad for a programming language to like infer that age is going to be a number because it's called age. Although we do rely on that for a lot of things. So like one of the interesting things that I did with pure UI was if the field name ended up with um, URL, I had an autocompleter for like feeding URLs into the system. But that that was only for the lack of type. So like the most correct protocol for a designer and developer to communicate would actually also involve types. The question is how granular are you gonna go with those types? Because you could have a type that is like, you know, 
background image URL. And from that, we can infer a lot of cool properties. Like we can, you know, I can autocomplete your design based on a library of background images and things like that. I mean, even knowing that it's an image or like a div with a background image is better in my mind than knowing it's a rectangle. Correct. Like Yes. So much So better. types are truth. Uh, I think this has been said a, a few times in the in different programming languages uh, community and communities. And and I think uh, that idea of the mental model is very important because a model that relies on information um, that is not being contained in that model definition is ends up being very problematic. Um, so whenever you're specifying this, you can sort of um, decide, you know, how rigorous is my model? And, and, and sort of one of the open problems there too is that going to, and I think this doesn't get mentioned enough, but going too deeply into the realm of correctness takes away from your ability to do other things, right? Like you, we always have to contemplate our own time. Like where does our own time go? So there's another wonderful post. I don't know if I linked it in PureUI, but highly recommended, which is a uh, developer that I think created the most, he wrote down the most simple uh, computer science algorithm. I think it was binary search. And then he wanted to create sort of this matrix of correctness based on different implementation languages and very different implementation details. So for example, one of the things he put into the matrix to sort of like have checkboxes was, does it uh, ensure that I give it a number that is within a valid range? So if, if you're doing a binary search, you, there's no point in going uh, into like negative uh, indexes, for example. So as you go deeper into the realm of correctness, you start adding more and more uh, columns to this matrix of correctness. Like, um, does it uh, always return a value within certain bounds? Does it, um, does it pass when, uh, does it error under this condition? Does it error under that condition? And what he found is the program was getting harder and harder and harder <laughs> to implement and longer and longer and longer as he added more correct, as he not added more correctness because obviously there's one level of correctness that is this maximum desired level of correctness. But the point was, the more you specify about the program, the more time it's taking out of you and the more mental effort is taking out of you. So I think this is why going back to like the shared mind, uh, small teams work really well because like they synchronize so well that actually maybe, you know, there is a point in like typing a little less just because like we're all absolutely on the same page. <laughs> and that's why you hear so frequently that type systems are very useful for, especially for very large companies because you're definitely not going to be in this super connected mind with a coworker that you still You don't have hive mind implants yet. <laughs> yeah. You haven't even met the, your coworker that's yeah. going to work on that. So like you can't really, you, you're certainly not in the same page with that coworker. So I think that is one of, one of the kind of arguments to this is, you know, the, uh, there is still going to be a lot of um, art to this science. So I guess one of the fears that sort of comes up with is like, we're butchering the sign, which was so firmly in the camp of creativity and art. 
and you're giving me like proof systems and uh, Haskell and Idris and type systems. No, 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 like what's happening, right? But at the end of the day, I think the art will be in, you know, deciding where when to invest so deeply into correctness or when to like even trust uh, that, you know, a certain design is complete and like, because you know that your coworker will implement it in, in correctly and so on. And there's an agility that comes with that, which is why I've never, I've never uh, rejected in my life languages that are typeless or languages that are super dynamic, because I think they both have um, strengths and weaknesses that apply equally to different circumstances. And I love this idea of incremental, adding incremental correctness to my program. Like uh, an example of that is um, uh, progressive type systems like Flow, where you write your code and then you can add more uh, yep. type certainties to it. Yeah, I think I, we did like no typing at first and then we progressively added it to individual files and eventually yeah. we got it to our code bases and more or less. Now the rule is if you typed. see a file without flow in it and you're working in that yeah. file, you have to flow type it. A another, uh, I haven't followed that. Another sort of um, <laughs> kind of like mind explosion meme that could be created there is if my program worked when it didn't specify types and if types are truth because obviously when the VM, the JavaScript VM is operating with this, all this, this stuff, like there are types that are sort of uh, working with, can we actually not type and then extract type out of runtime and then put it back into the code to make our life easier? Yeah, I like that idea because the type, yeah, typing for discreteness at one point in time is kind of pointless if it works, but right. you're typing for your future self. Yeah, you're typing for your future self, you're typing for inputs that you didn't conceive at that very sure. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you know, like oh, yeah, yeah. a and database gave especially you... Especially user-generated stuff, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, things that are outside of your control would sure. be a better way to uh, generalize that. Like, it's outside of your control what other people are going to do, what your future self is going to do. Um, <laughs> Something what, dumb, probably. What the data, that, <laughs> <laughs> the data comes out of the database is. But there is, um, inter it's interesting that if you think about typing as a progressive technology, I think uh, Instagram put out this um, tool that for their Python code, I think, uh, that extracts types out of runtime. So like, if I wrote down, you know, let h equals, and, uh, and I get some value from my database that gets decoded as a number out of my database, then that code gets evaluated at runtime, at runtime. And this is the same technology for like how code coverage works, where like to count code coverage, the code gets rewritten so that every line sort of increments a counter, right? And then we count total lines and then we count how many times that counter got increased. So we can sort of use that same approach to sort of say, okay, the H binding, the H variable got populated with a thing that is a number. So you can sort of go back and say to the developer, do you want to annotate that this binding is indeed a number? Um, so there are a lot of interesting things that um, maybe it is that we have to get more insight also out of execution uh, or out of statistical knowledge yeah. uh, that comes from execution in order to then do more of a labeling job. Right, because like that is a very basic type. It's like let h colon number equals something that comes from the database, right? But then there are more complicated types. Like you know, there is a user 
struct that describes like the user profile and whatever. So the runtime could tell you, well, this looks like an object. It has these fields. Actually, I run it at one point and it didn't have this field. So actually, you can get super interesting information out of runtime, right? Like databases that are schema-less can yield different record types yeah. that have absent fields. Yeah, that's the that next question. Null, yeah, where you were stuff, expecting yeah. a number mm -hmm. and so on. So from runtime, you could actually invalidate a lot of your hypotheses about what the actual type was for the program to be correct. Because keep in mind that if you're writing a program that works with a database, whether you like it or not, you if the database contains null, you uh, where the H was, you are going to have to deal with that in some way or another. You're either going to have to error, or you're going to have to you know say N slash A in gray when you're dis rendering the H or whatever. So I argue that maybe that it's actually more useful to. Um, never enforce the types, kind of like flow strips them prior to compilation, prior to execution, and then selectively get information back out of runtime about whether our hypotheses about types were correct or not. So we're dealing with a much more uh, dynamic mm -hmm. uh, way of, of doing this job. And at the end of it, maybe all that we're going to do is just like say, looks good or doesn't look good and then labeling it <laughs> like this is the type that emerged yeah. out of this yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's called user profile because obviously the runtime doesn't know what arbitrary data is operating sure, with. yeah you know that um it does seem like a much better way about it to me um and i think that's why javascript has also been so successful is because it gives you all this flexibility to like rethink best practices, right? Like to sort of imagine all of this crazy different ways of doing things. Um, I think React was, React originated in, in that world because of that freedom. And I think that freedom is awesome. So going back to, you know, design and implementation, I think whatever, however we evolve our tools, we have to keep in mind that that freedom has to stay so that we can always step out and do something in a completely different way. Uh, the reason, <laughs> going back a few minutes, I listed the things that changed my mental like frameworks. I want to know what changed yours <laughs> as you were, uh, I guess, growing up or getting into design, getting into development. What were some mental model changing paradigms that you encountered that you think other people should know about that they might not know about? That's a really uh, great question. Um, one of the mental models that I love thinking about is this idea of taming chaos, um, of achieving correctness uh, over time rather than trying to like enforce a universe where everything falls into place. So earlier today, we were actually talking about this idea of a control loop, which uh, is a, a principle in engineering with, which describes a process that runs over time to ensure that the target, uh, the target variable matches the process variable that you're reading. So something, for example, like if you wanted to control temperature in a room, 
it'd be almost impossible to design a system that can, you know, go ahead and like change every single little thing that could be impacting s such a complex physical system uh, that uh, yields a certain uh, amount of temperature. The, your best bet is to read that read the temperature over time and then regulate your other variable to match that desire. So this is how Nest works and like mm -hmm. how all these things work. And I think we tend to overestimate our own ability to in the in this in the realm of programming and and, and uh, distributed systems and computer computer systems. We tend to overestimate our own ability to control this dynamism and this inherent chaos that occurs. And we think that, oh, if I send this patch and I change this line of code and th this, my system is never going to get into the wrong state. So I think something that um, I've realized over time is that it's just, uh, you're going to have a much easier time in your life if you first start uh, in many systems assuming that you're not going to be able to tame the complexity right there and then, and that you have to have a process that ensures it over time. So another related mental model is this idea of time and correctness over time. So for example, something that kind of blew my mind recently was, um, I think at this point, most listeners are probably aware of how Bitcoin works and, and the blockchain and this idea that blocks get added over time. But it's it's a there's a very interesting property of Bitcoin that like if your transaction gets put into a block, you don't know that that transaction is actually final. That is not going to be undone in the future. So the reason for that is that uh, many miners could be competing for a block, and actually it could happen that two miners solve different blocks at the same exact time, and they include different sets of sets of transactions in each block. So there could be, there is almost like this split universe. There's a universe in which a transaction made into the blockchain. There's this other universe for it didn't. Mm -hmm. And actually, what, okay, what's the universe that's going to win? The win majority wins. It actually just <laughs> bifurcates reality into multiple dimensions and then one wins in each one and they're like, call yes. it a day. Absolutely. Uh, there's this code in the Bitcoin code base for reorgs. Bitcoin takes for granted that there's going to be all this craziness of split realities and that we're constantly have to be reorganizing ourselves. The local view of my blockchain will, will be reorganized. So the greatest Bitcoin didn't say everything's going to be perfect when a broadcast transaction is going to be go into the blockchain. No, they wrote a ton of code for actually dealing with, uh, it turns out that everything I thought about the universe is false for the last hour. Let's reorganize it. We broke crazy. the universe an hour ago. <laughs> yes. Um, but it goes it goes a little deeper than that. So like uh, two miners uh, discover a block. They decide to include a di completely different sets of transactions. So what happens is they broadcast those blocks. And then another miner will come and will have to pick one block to work on, to add more work on. So they have to extend the blockchain. And the blockchain can't have forks. It's a monolithic view of, the, of reality. So... They have to decide one of those. You could be lucky that they pick the one that had your transaction or not. So what happens is, and this is where the proof of work aspect of Bitcoin comes in, is like they continue, the blockchain continues to grow and continues to accumulate work. So because this idea that miners could at the same exact point in time solve a block is a probabilistic thing, and it's quite unlikely that it's going to happen several times in a row, then you end up with a situation where like 
you're five blocks deep and then, you know, there's no chance that the transactions are going to change. So there's no chance that the other block that was competing with uh, your block five blocks ago will find its way into that same blockchain because miners decided to work at work to other versions of the blockchain. It's almost like in Git, you try to commit and, you know, you're competing with uh, developer A and developer B and they're changing the same exact line, but you we have to choose one line. Yeah, what, which one goes first, right? Which one got, which pull request got merged first? So I used to think, uh, and I was 100% sure of this uh, because of this nature of, I don't know what the future looks like. I used to think that Bitcoin was an eventually consistent system. And what that means is like, you don't know whether the data that you've committed or the the write that you've made has been committed uh, at that point in time or not, and it's eventually going to be known. Instead, I read this blog post that really changed my mental model about how I think about consistency. It said, Bitcoin is not an eventually consistent system. Bitcoin actually has the strongest form of consistency that you could imagine in any distributed system because you have to think about... uh, consistency in terms of a read protocol. So what a read protocol means is that instead of you trying to uh, ascertain truth in terms of reading the latest known block that you've received, you have to um, constrain your local read protocol to go, for example, six blocks back in the past. And when you've you've added that constraint to the system, you know that six blocks in the past is never going to change. Sure, things could change in the meantime, like right now as we speak, blocks are competing with each other. But if I decide as a process that my read protocol is I consider transactions to be valid only if there are six blocks deep, then that truth is absolutely cemented forever and ever in the future. And actually, Bitcoin adds this level of energetic dependence into the system. It's it's physically impossible to rewrite that history. And no other system in, in the world has ever given us these guarantees that in order to invalidate my read protocol, you have to use energy in the universe, energy that you cannot even possibly amass. Because if you go deeper and deeper into the blockchain, the energetic requirements that have piled on would require you to like, let's say you want to change the transaction happened 10 blocks ago. So you have to prove to the network that you've discovered a block 10 blocks ago and then nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, and then into the future so that your version of the blockchain wins, which requires such a dramatic energetic investment that we've sort of merged uh, this idea of distributed systems and consistency with, and we've anchored it in physical reality. And I don't know of a mental model that has more dramatic implications um, than that. Um, so we don't know where this experiment is going to go, but to me, it's it's changed a lot of what I considered, uh, to, uh, for example, what is true in the universe. I noticed you talk about correctness rather than truth, because it seems like a lot of these concepts are around relativism and like- Correct. Yeah, yes, everything is fact. referred to in like, it's relatively yeah, correct, correct compared to truth X. Truth is only, in this case, truth is relative to the read protocol of that particular Bitcoin node, right? Like there are competing, com- there are things that are competing to be true. Only one ends up being true according to that read protocol that you've decided. 
Um, and obviously, correctness goes into that example because you have to you val it's very easy for you to validate that the work that a miner did is correct like you can you can do it quickly even though it took them a very long time to like invest the work so there is a level of okay i decided that when i get an incoming message i decided whether it's valid or not but then deciding the version of the truth is a, is a tricky problem because like i said there's nothing that stops this universe from two miners at the same exact time solve the same exact puzzle with two different results, actually. So that's where like you enter very firmly into this concept of relativity. Like the, the, the both truths could be valid depending on your read protocol, which is another way of saying like, what do I accept as a truth in this universe? Um, you're going to end up with one version or another. And I think this is very novel because we used to, um, going back to the example of a pull request and you're competing with like two developers trying to edit the same line, we've always solved this problem because we know the membership set. So we know who are, we know who the developers are that we're working with and we know what the conflict resolution protocol is. The conflict resolution protocol is unplugging their network. <laughs> <laughs> Relating their branch <laughs> or something. It's like we comment back and we say, uh, okay, I'm accepting this one. You rebase it. Um, but, you know, once you've uh, actually expand this uh, to, okay, now the membership set is anyone in the world. There's so many interesting things that happen. And in terms of novel uh, data structures and novel, and novel computer systems, this, um, this has actually made my understanding of uh, systems that I, because I don't write code for Bitcoin, but it's actually strengthened my own, uh, understanding of other systems is um, like I mentioned about um, the difference between eventual consistency and strong consistency uh, as not being universal things, but actually depending on a read protocol. Like these are all things that um, reading and becoming interested in these other topics have helped me with, and they're super fascinating. And I and I expect that this is going to have very profound effects on other fields, not just. Distributed systems, but like how we worry about organizing society, censorship, like all these interesting things are sort of being discussed now as a result of this new novel thing. Um, I think it was uh, someone like Bill Gates or or uh, or or might have been Ralph Merkel that said it is the first system that is sort of acting as this AI uh, that we give it. Uh, that pays us to maintain it. Because like what's happening uh, with Bitcoin is the miners are incentivized to maintain the network because they're being paid by the network. And that's kind of uh, a, a crazy mental model. Um, it's kind of uh, like the strange loop concept of uh, uh, that book, uh, S um, What's it called? It's um, capitalism for its own sake. That's kind of funny. Yes, exactly. It's like self-referential <laughs> capitalism uh, where... Webpack cannot compile. There is no externality into the system. Like you're not being paid to maintain Bitcoin in dollars. You're being paid to maintain Bitcoin in Bitcoin. Well, that's, that's like the old company store model, right? Like <laughs> miners would be paid in like gold <laughs> well no it's like vouchers for the company store for oh. mining equipment and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right 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 but actually that is a very interesting point too is like if you're mining for gold 
uh, you can then sell it to the market and then you keep it a little bit uh, to yourself. It's it's a very interesting idea as well. Yeah, it's only in the conversion that it gains value, which is right. interesting. Otherwise, it's just vouchers. Yeah, vouchers are cool. Cool. <laughs> Redeemable for something <laughs> yeah. in the future. You're, you're very technical, uh, but obviously you care and understand a lot about design. Design um, is technical. Yeah. What would be advice to designers who want to become more technical, but are perhaps um, intimidated by or uh, lack self-confidence in the ability to become that? Yeah, uh, I actually pick up that and say the indeed design is very technical. I think we tend to conflate ability to write code with ability to reason about the systems. So code is just one tool that allows you to download those uh, ideas, those proofs that you had in your mind, like put them into like something, right? Um, just as useful is actually pseudocode. So like when you when you are tasked with implementing a protocol or implementing a specification, even for like um, things like Flexbox. Like if you were writing your own web browser and you had to like implement Flexbox, I don't know if this is the case exactly with Flexbox, but you're going to find that you go to a lot of the specifications that W3C and YWG put out and they contain pseudocode because like the only way that they can explain exactly how Flexbox works is by almost almost describing it in terms of code, mm. right? And and yet it, that code doesn't run, but it fulfills its purpose so well. It's varying levels of correctness. Like right. the the code actually lets you prove that it is correct. Right, exactly. And and the and the specification is actually worried in my opinion like that pseudocode is potentially more important than maybe whatever got committed to webkit that could have bugs or whatever. So the designer It has all of them. WebKit, <laughs> WebKit kept all the bugs. So the designer actually like has the most important technical task which is that specification and i would recommend you know don't get intimidated by code because maybe you can write sufficiently good pseudocode that you know like it's describing really well how the system works and then as you as you do that over time more and more and more you end up like with the ability to write the actually executing code so for you pseudocode in this situation would be a right. prototype yeah marker. it's like if you know, uh, network error, like this would be the artboard. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. start reasoning about those terms. And then you're going to uh, uh, uncover a lot of interesting questions like, okay, so how does this actually happen that we learn about the error from the network? And then maybe a coder will explain to you that, oh, you use the fetch API and you put the await keyword in front and then you <laughs> catch it. And then that's how you find that, you know, so you learn more about the nuance of code the, I guess the takeaway is, you know, code is transient. Like, uh, syntax is transient. Like, developers get so concerned about syntax, but, like, who cares? Developers get so concerned about language. Who cares? There's a very, uh, going back to mental models, it was a very influential paper to me by Leslie Lamport, who is the uh, one of the fathers of uh, distributed systems. And... He, uh, he wrote this kind of ranty article about how programmers get so concerned with language. Like, for example, 
someone someone becomes even identified in their ego with a particular language. I'm a C++ developer, and I reason about the entire universe in terms, in terms of C++. Whereas what he's saying is, uh, and, the, and it's obviously biased by his own background because the way that he specified all distributed systems was by using mathematics, but he's, he argues, ultimately, we can reason about any program uh, any state machine with very simple mathematics. So my takeaway from that is even code has, uh, can have very transient value. Code is very often incomplete. Code is very often riddled with bugs, but you can sort of uh, approach and learn about how, to, how you write code Without starting there, without you, you don't have to put yourself in front of an empty uh, editor. You have to, you can approach it already from the tools that you're operating with in a, in a day-to-day basis. Um, from thinking about uh, visual designers, interface designers, or tools that allow you to do more with like motion. I think uh, Framer is approaching that uh, the problem of how do we code and specify systems, uh, even though we're not targeting the definitive language because the definitive language is going to change like maybe a certain ui has to be written by two different teams once for android once for ios right Uh, because they want certain performance characteristics or certain apis and so on so actually the one that was like correct was the designer like and so i would recommend that like maybe there are um tools that don't go all the way deeply into the final concrete implementation and those skills are super useful to pick up i uh i'm super new to the concept of uh state charts or i guess like state, state machines finite state machines um but i've been following we have like a community for it on spectrum where people uh like some of the guys writing these state charts libraries are, are posting and it's been really i mean it's been eye-opening in in the way they just approach like logic correct flow and, and controlling that and understanding where that diverges and then reconverges. And I think from a design standpoint, that's useful because then you can start to think about like abstract away the UI and just think about like, how is this going to be used yeah. and where do actions lead to other nice actions. A very nice thing about those tools as well is that they kind of let you visualize also the, the difficulty of the very problem that you're facing. <laughs> like yeah. um, some of the state charts that I've seen for even modeling a simple calculator GUI uh, take a tremendous amount of work. So I think that's another uh, benefit of using tools like that and like approaching it from a design perspective is like you can visualize your almost like your technical debt. Like you can visualize how difficult your endeavor is which is not easy to do. Like, it's not always about even the lines of code. Visualizing the the complexity of your program is like a really uh, awesome thing, and um, that's why I'm very uh, optimistic about uh, designers just sort of being the drivers of correctness in the future. Hmm. Cool. We're uh, well over time, but we always like to end by asking, "What keeps you up at night?" One of the things that keeps me up at night is how can we, not, not obviously literally, but I do worry about how can we preserve systems 
of creative freedom, right? So the typical web versus native thing comes to mind a little bit there. But the underlying thesis is like, let's create systems that have almost no gatekeepers. So as much as I love Apple, I do think that developers needing to license themselves and like pay a yearly license to put out code into a store that gets reviewed kind of worries me a little bit. It's, I think it's a dangerous trend to go into. I think um, designers and developers should be able to put something out unconstrained, unreviewed. Obviously, there are concerns that reviews help with, like um, malware. <laughs> malware. Well, uh, malware, actually, iOS has done so good with uh, controlling malware via sandboxing and technical solutions. Um, so that is one of the interesting problems, I think, of our times is we figure out amazing distribution models. Like the App Store is so great. Like I go in a search and enter anything in one tap and it's there. But at the same time, we got into this scenario where like to code sign a program, I have to like have a business ID in the US or like, it's just, it's kind of crazy. Like even describing it as uh, bringing, bringing back bad memories of this process, right? So I think that's one of the important things. Uh, I think uh, we, whether, no matter what your stance is on like blockchain and cryptocurrencies and all this, the pendulum is swinging back to, we did a lot wrong in terms of like, pigeonholing and constraining people either because it's financial systems or it's because it's APIs or it's databases or it's publishing systems or it's political censorship. And I think we need to like continue to push back into going away from that. Um, and this kind of covers a huge spectrum of issues like privacy, data, freedom and like ownership of your own data um, censorship resistance, um, reaching out everybody in the world, no matter what their uh, political and circumstance or uh, situation is. And, and these are, I think, the most important problems to solve in our times because we have developed uh, 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 an amazing uh, technology uh, here in the Valley, especially we've developed all these amazing companies and now they control everything. And... The thing uh, that makes them more awesome is continuing to control everything. So, like, a lot of uh, deep learning algorithms become better if you continue to, like, feed them data into it. A lot of um, applications get better if you throw more uh, developers at them that are, like, fixing every single little glitch. Um, search engines get better if everyone... Um, uses the same search engines because then they pick the right result, which makes the search engine better for the next search and so on. So we have to be very mindful of uh, not locking creativity out as we continue to improve the systems because they're awesome and they've changed the world, but we need to leave that space open for uh, new things and new people to come in. Um, so that's why I worry so much about satisfying the needs of large companies, but also there's a new independent player. There's one person somewhere in the world and they want to like do this new awesome system and put it out there in seconds. Uh, that's kind of the, the thing that we, we try to do. Awesome. Thanks Thank for you. coming by, man. Thanks so Thank much for hanging out. That was 235 and I really enjoyed this episode. Thanks to you for listening. 
Thanks to Brian for being here. Thanks to Guillermo for being here. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, let us know what you thought. Uh, we're in our Spectrum community at spectrum.chat slash specfm has the uh, channels for all of our podcasts, including Design Details and... The new one, Tools Day. Tools Day, who just joined the network. Uh, so if you need more podcasts for your eardrums to vibrate and process and... Uh, well, they don't do the process. Do the things that the eardrums do. Go to spec.fm or join our communities uh, for all of our shows at spectrum.chat slash spec.fm. See you next week. Quabam!